0: In every job that must be done, there is an element of fun. Fun, 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 fun. to the
1: wonderful
0: Cover is not the best, so i open it up and take a look. Ah, if it isn't the only bookworm in town. What's that word again? Inspired. by
1: or other things that you can listen to or read about involving Disney, we'll examine it here. The Enchanted Disney Stories of Walt, Hollywood, and Live Action Film uncovers the personal and professional experiences of 15 individuals who have Disney connections, especially in concert with the world of live action Disney films and uh, interactions with the company's founder himself. Spencer Wright, an author who joined in on an episode of Notably Disney, more than a year ago to discuss his book, Voices Behind the Magic, is responsible for this new title. Uh, Today, Spencer returns to talk about this new release. So welcome back to the podcast, Spencer. Thank you for having me back. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, my pleasure. Well, let's get started with a general question that most may have. Uh, why Why spotlight key individuals' who are associated with Disney live action films, and particularly in what I think many would consider Walt's era, which is uh, obviously now more than five decades behind us.
0: So about five years ago, I started working on a book um, about connections between the world of Disney and old Hollywood. And when I talk about old Hollywood, I mean about the mid twenties to the mid fifties, when a lot of filmmaking was centered in Los Angeles. And one of the chapters was going to be about people from this world who then later had roles in live action films. But as I dived into their lives and their roles in these films, I realized each person could easily be a chapter. And then as I got along further, I realized you know this could easily be a full book. Um, The book I wrote really, I'd span really the entire 20th century and almost up into the modern day. Um, But there is quite a focus on the period of Walt Disney's life Um, from 1901 until 1966 and you know about a third of the content of the book covers things that aren't directly related to Disney but discuss the person's life and their work which I think is especially important as we get further away from the time that Walt Disney was alive Um, you know there are fewer and fewer people around who work directly with Walt we're getting further away from this time And then I also thought this format was a great way to spotlight a lot of the live-action films that the studio has made. Um, I am becoming a little concerned that the live-action films are becoming somewhat overlooked, where they're getting a little left behind. This was especially true when Disney Plus came out, and it seemed most of the emphasis was on Star Wars and Marvel, which makes sense. Um, But there's a whole history there as well.
1: Yeah, well, and I think you touch on something important there, and I know you weave it throughout the book in terms of you know, uh, being able to, for folks being able to access many of, many of these films, not all of them on Disney Plus, that was kind of a turning point, I think, for a lot of folks in being able to check out these movies, which previously were only available on, you know, VHS or DVD, maybe had been discontinued for a number of years. So it really seems like the streaming service uh, provided a, a new opportunity for folks to become acquainted with these movies that otherwise perhaps hadn't been seen in quite a long time.
0: Right. Yeah, I totally agree. And I know I've seen a lot of people, um, especially maybe in their forties or older who've watched them and then realize, Hey, these are the films I loved from my childhood. And I totally forgot about it. Um, yeah, Where well, a lot of them I've not watched in years and I was like, this film seems vaguely familiar. I'm like, I probably watched it on TV as a child and just forgot about it.
1: Yeah. For, for me, one of those classic Walt era films was the ugly Docks and which, uh, which I know you give some attention to in, in the book via Suzanne Plachette and, and, and more. Um, so Spencer, I'm curious. I, I know in your uh, further reading section at the end of the book, you you point out some you know useful reads for folks uh, who want to discover more about some of the topics that you cover. And I know there are a few books um, that have covered Disney live action films. So I guess I'm wondering uh, how you approached your title, where you're really focusing on individuals singularly, but of course you're you're blending in the different Disney live action projects, given that there is some, you know, previous literature on uh, live action films. What did you want to do with yours to make it distinctive?
0: So in terms of the format of this book and writing about Disney live action film, it was very much a needle in the haystack type situation. Um, I might read a biography of someone, for example, I discuss Beulah Bondi who is Granny Kincaid and so dear to my heart. And a great biography of her came out that does detail the film, you know, and her work on the film, but somebody else, their work in the live action film might barely get a mention. So it was really reading as many Disney books as I possibly could. Um, even if I didn't think it would be relevant, cause I love Disney history anyway. And while my, the writing of this book did start before, um, you know, during the pandemic, we were on lockdown and then I did not have a commute. So fortunately I had a lot more time to read things and discover things that may not get in the book otherwise. Um, for example, I read The Life and Times of Ward Kimball, which is a great biography of, that, of what we know really as the animator of Jiminy Cricket, The Treasure Cat. Um, but he had an, a wide career that also included work in the live action films. And there's, you know, three or four live action films that he was involved in. And really taking this sort of approach where I just have to sort of read whatever I can about Disney, um, you know, and see what I find. And luckily, I found a lot of treasures.
1: Well, let's talk about that process, because that's what I always find interesting when I when I talk with authors, because by all intents and purposes, you are a curator of information. You are, yes. you're gathering resources. So how did you have a specific structure or game plan in your mind when you were framing this book? And And I guess tied into this, just determining which 15 people that you wanted to focus on.
0: Yeah. So in terms of my um, research approach, I first started by compiling a list of people who, you know, were in these live-action films who came from the world of old Hollywood. And then I did some background to see, you know, was their story especially interesting? Um, you know, did they contribute something unique to the film they were in? Because some people, it was a matter of going to work, doing their job well, and leaving. And then when I researched each person, there's a three-pronged approach. It's researching the person specifically. Um, Walt and Roy Disney's life and then the studio as a whole Um, so for example my first chapter is on someone named Paula Negri who was a star during the silent film era and she also had a supporting role in the 1964 feature The Moonspinners but part of what I discuss is how her arrival in Hollywood in 1922 compares to Walt and Roy's in 1923 Um, So, of course, I read the, you know, her memoir that she wrote. There's a wonderful book called Walt Before Mickey, um, which is about, you know, Walt Before Mickey, which I would consider a must read for any Disney fan. Um, So I learned more about the 20s that way. And then also, you know, focusing on Walt Disney's travels as the Moon Spinner was filmed in London and Greece. So it's a lot of information that you then have to compact down and really boil it down. And and that was the general approach. And some films had more information than others. You know, I talk about Swiss Family Robinson um, and Sasu Hayakawa, who was the pirate captain. Well, that movie had a massive amount of information. Um, A lot of movies post Walt Disney's passing, this is changing, um, but a lot of movies post Walt Disney's passing, there's almost no information. Um, And it's almost like a light switch went off where after his passing, some of these movies have almost no information. Um, so again, the approach was really researching the person, Walt and Roy Disney, and then the studio as a whole, all at the same time, and then organizing the information.
1: Yeah, and I think that's what uh, that was one of my takeaways as a reader that there was just a lot of um, a lot of disparate information packed in, but to kind of illustrate how the the featured uh, celebrity, if you will, uh, fits within this larger fabric of Disney at the time as well and. And other uh, events and experiences um, in the world of Disney. So, kind of going back to an initial uh, question I had in terms of picking 15 people, right? It's, it's, I mean, there could be so many dozens of, of individuals for someone to focus on. Why these individuals? Some are more notable, some I had never really even given much thought to.
0: Right, and so I wanted to make sure with the fifteen individuals, and I wrote this out. Um, I, like, I still like to write a lot of things by hand, and it was writing out the names, what eras of their life I'm going to be talking about, and to make sure I'm covering a wide enough variety of movies. Um, so, for example, I talk about individuals who were stars in the silent era, which I imagine a lot of people today probably haven't heard of at all. Um, Suzanne Pleshette, a lot of she was a big star on television. So a lot of people probably in their 40s and over would have heard of her. Um, One of my favorite people from history in general is Betty Davis, who was a Hollywood star in the 40s, but her career went from the 30s to the 80s. Um, And she is still very well-known today. So it was really a mix of people from different eras within Disney, within their own life, um, you know, and making sure I cover a good mix of movies. I had an initial list and I was only covering about 15 Disney films. Which really didn't seem sufficient. Um, so I shuffled along. So when you do read the book, you can get a really clear picture of how the Walt Disney studio evolved over time, you know, from when they were first starting to figure out how to make live-action films up until just about the present.
1: Well, it makes me think too, you know, some of the folks you highlight, you know, only contributed one or two features or, or main projects with Disney. Others have their hands in a, a number of of different uh, uh, entities and, and, and films. Why, you know, I think, and it's, I think it's just an interesting editorial decision in terms of how to kind of honor the whole history of Disney and, and, and particularly highlight uh, focus in, in Walt era, but, but also, you know, honoring these folks who, you know, their contributions may not have been as significant as a, Dean Jones, for instance, right? Who's referenced at different points, but he's not the focus of any singular chapter. So how did he make sense of where you want to attend to some who maybe only had one or two projects with Disney, others a ton?
0: So that in terms of the editorial format, there was a great deal of risk because I may start someone and not even realize, you know, the scope of their contribution. So for example, I talk about Debbie Reynolds, who um, was Aggie in the Halloween Town films. And she was a big star right at the end of the studio system. Well, I had no idea when I first started that she was at the opening of Disneyland and really her life's work of trying to preserve memorabilia from Hollywood came from meeting Walt on the opening day of Disneyland, um, where I mentioned Peter Lorre, who had a supporting role in 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. And he, um, you know, he was from a much more shallow era in the forties. And so due to his looks, he was consigned to a lot of very sort of lecherous villainous type roles. Well, he's been caricatured in hundreds of animated works, including Disney works. So I talk about that. So it was a risk, um, which is why you pick a subject that you love. So if you take the risk and it doesn't pay off, well, you learn something, you watch some movies you loved, and then you can move forward.
1: Well, I think that's kind of one of the benefits for for readers and you know t- uh, uh, checking out a, a title like this is that you probably recognize some names, you probably don't recognize others, but it, it kind of allows you to you know pick and choose who you're interested in learning more about and perhaps all of all of them as as well. Um, were were there any uh, individuals who you covered who? you really hadn't known much about at all prior to embarking on this process?
0: Well, what's strange is, I mentioned Sasu Hayakawa, who plays the pirate captain in Swiss Family Robinson. I knew he was in, um, you know, a star during the silent era, but in the 19-teens, he was really one of the biggest stars in Hollywood um, from about 1915 to the early 20s. And I read a lot about that period. I almost never come across his name. Um, And he almost never comes up. And there's this whole world. Um, You know, one of the lessons I want people to hopefully take away from reading the book is, you know, just by looking at someone having sort of a superficial glance of someone, you never know who they are, um, what their background is, you know, where they came from. I talk about Iris Adrian, who had 10, like sort of very small roles in different Disney films as very sort of haggard, messy, shrill women. She was the car hop in The Love Bug. Um and you know, thirty years prior to that role, she was one of the sexiest, most popular showgirls in New York City. Um, but seeing her in those roles, you would probably never guess that.
1: Yeah, uh, quite a quite a variety of, of folks too, because that, and that's what I was struck by, right? like you're you're mm-hmm. highlighting folks who may have had relatively insignificant roles in certain films, but who have really rich histories um, through the the context that you. Uh, relay Let, let's maybe focus on on some of the stars that you highlight you've mentioned a few examples um and and you you already briefly mentioned Paula Negri with uh, who uh, performed at the toward the end of her career with the Moonspinners um what did you enjoy about relaying her story given that you know she was she was kind of a, a legend of her time but then in many ways faded from from public view and, until uh until this Disney opportunity emerged?
0: Yeah, so Pola Negri, she was really one of the top stars in Hollywood during the 1920s. And this was an era where in today's dollars, they made hundreds of thousands of dollars a week and lived these very lavish lifestyles. Um, And they really were gods in society. I briefly mentioned um, star Rudolph Valentino, who she had a romance with. And when he passed away in either 1926 or seven, there were riots at his funeral you know, I mean, these really were idols because there was there were really no other stars. I mean, there were touring vaudevillians, there were people like that, but nothing like these early silent film stars. And so she arrived in Hollywood in late 1922, and then Walt arrived in late 1923. And so she was part of this massive studio machine that Walt tried to sort of get into to work in live action film, but didn't have success and went back to animation. Although Roy claims that he just didn't want a job. He just wanted to go back to animation. Um, and I'm inclined to agree with what Roy said, but regardless, and then she was a massive star who faded very quickly once the sound era rolled in, you know, and a lot of the stars during this era, the teens and the twenties, you know, there was no social media, there was radio, but there wasn't any television. So if somebody didn't really work hard of a public persona, then they tended to just sort of disappear. So when she was cast in the 1964 film, The Moon Spinners*, Walt actually had thought she had probably passed away many decades before. Um, and she and other stars, you know, of similar stature, that was a common story. Or if anyone's watched the 1950 film Sunset Boulevard, um, there's a silent movie queen played by a real life silent movie queen, Gloria Swanson. And that's sort of the base of the story as are part of this lavish world that just went away. Um, one of my favorite things researching her was, they're all on in the internet archive on archive.org and you can look at the fan magazines and they're just absolutely beautiful works of art. Um, and you can just, and like I said, since a lot of this was during the pandemic, I had nothing else to do, I couldn't go anywhere. So reading through them was just a wonderful, wonderful experience. Um, and I do think of the 1920s as a time that we can see through a lot of film that survives and a lot of media that survives that is an era a little more recognizable to us, um, but is still a sort of legendary era. And, you know, going back to Pola Negri, when she reemerged in public view in 1963, you know, it brought up this very legendary era of the 20s because you had the 20s and then the Great Depression. So even as soon as the 1940s, the 20s was this long bygone mythical era um, and even though Paula Negri's you know, role in the Moon Spinners is very small, it really brought a lot of attention to the film um, and just this magical time that a lot of older people appreciated remembering. And all of this comes from her small appearance.
1: Yeah, and, that, and that's what I, I, what I appreciated about your book. You're, you're really able to flesh out a, a lot of context, um, other Disney events around. Uh, the time of of certain projects I um I know like there was a whole portion where you're talking about the the opening of Walt Disney World um, television special and um around the time of, of certain projects and and stars that you focus, including um, Agnes Morehood, uh Morehead, excuse me um what kind of shifting to that like what what contributed to you taking that approach where you really wanted to, not only highlight the stars and their Disney contributions, but also what was in the the realm of of the Walt Disney corporation in, in those specific periods. What, why, why do that? What's, what's the, uh, the hook there from your perspective?
0: um, That was totally accidental. As I started the book, the intent really was to write about, you know, their life and work and then the role in the movie. And as I went along more and more, I found all these other connections like Agnes Moorehead at the opening of Walt Disney World. And as I went along, I realized there's a lot of other, inform- you know, there's a lot of other connections here outside of the movies. And really the core reason that, you know, the Walt Disney company, the Walt Disney studio has survived in the form it has when the other major studios didn't is because they did diversify. So they went into television, they have the parks, they have all kinds of merchandise, they have a respected brand, Because initially I thought, well, I'm talking about movies, but I keep going back to the parks. But in terms of Disney, it's hand in hand. Um, Again, that's really why the Walt Disney brand has survived for so long.
1: Yeah, no, that's a really astute point, uh, thinking about it. And, um, you know, we're talking about, you know, classic Disney films, one that came to mind before reading the book is, oh, I wonder if there'd be any content on the parent trap. And sure enough, you have a, a chapter on Maureen O'Hara, who um, played the mother in, in the original uh, 1961. Is that right?
0: 1961
1: film? Yes. Okay. I figured you'd know the date. What, what was really interesting about the story you relay, and I and I understand it's been covered in other, other spaces too, but know she had a clause for top billing she didn't receive it um and apparently she was tempted to sue disney and uh, based on the material that you're sharing walt uh, sent a very clear and harsh message not to sue him not to sue the company um and it was really unfortunate to to hear about this piece of disney history how did you make sense of of that
0: so I mean, I looked at what she said over years of interviews to see if she was consistent and she was always consistent in what she said. Um, so I am inclined to believe her. Um, it is unfortunate to see this, you know, side of Walt that isn't as pleasant. Um, in that section, I did quote a lot from her autobiography, um, because they are her words. Um, she did indicate that, I guess there's a history of other people having issues with the Walt Disney studio as well. I did not come across that. Um, but at the same time, I don't have any reason to not believe her. Um, it was sort of an unfor- it was a little cringy to write her sort of you know saying that Walt had to sort of threaten her about the billing and everything else. Um, another section that was someone was being sort of critical of Disney, but it was a little more funny is Betty Davis, and she had one of her two Disney roles was in The Watcher in the Woods, which initially came out in 1980, but then re-released in 1981 because the initial version was so bad. <laughs> And there's this really funny interview she's doing in Omni Magazine, which was a very popular sci-fi magazine, where she's basically saying, you know, Disney and all these other studios, they're making all these movies that are total crap, but they'll turn around over time. You know, in that case, she was sort of identifying this issue where Disney had this problem, other studios had this issue where you don't have one figurehead anymore, like Walt Disney or Louis B. Mayer, really making the decisions and being king of their, you know, king of their castle. And so you know you do see a decline in quality of movies. So at least that one's a little funnier than Marino Harris situation, um, which was unfortunate. Um, I one other way to look at it too is she did say, well, you know, this helped revive my career because this was in the '60s. She was a woman who was 40, and at that time, you know, a woman who was 40 was considered pretty old, um, and she was still able to keep working quite pro- prolifically.
1: Yeah. Well, and uh, you know we talk about. The different divisions of of Disney and how it you know strengthened its brand and, and opportunity to to be strong in a very changing economy you know Maureen here is a, a fine example too because it's not only her appearance in The Parent Trap but also its soundtrack and she sang the uh was it for now for always yes yeah. um, piece which I think is a, just a lovely uh time capsule of a song and again the 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 longevity of Disney music, mind you, it's not a let's get together, but it it still contributed to the, you know, the tunes that we associate with a a quote unquote classic Disney movie.
0: I mean, even who's afraid of the big bad wolf is still extremely popular. And that goes back to the early 30s. So it goes back to almost as early as you can go with having music in a, you know, in a movie.
1: Oh my gosh. Yeah. And well, that was just such a a phenomenal success. Uh, talk about that tune. My gosh, like Disney just was, was booming because of, of how much the public responded to that and the symbolism of, of that song in, in the thirties as well. Yeah, absolutely. What were some of the like really fascinating details that you uncovered that you don't feel like have been illuminated, um, until now, right? You're discussing how you're looking through old magazines and and you know and different types of texts. But what are some discoveries that you feel like you stumbled upon that you feel like are quite noteworthy, as discussed in your your book?
0: Well, I'm not sure how noteworthy worthy it is, but my favorite discovery was um I do a lot of nerdy stuff, but probably the nerdiest was looking through old Sears Roebuck catalogs from the turn of the century. Again, they're on archive. A lot of them are on archive.org. Um, and so apparently, I'd never knew this, but a lot of movie studios, including Disney, to act, but especially Disney, to accurately represent the past would reference old Sears Robot catalogs, which um, a lot of listeners may not even remember them, but they're real, real thick catalogs. And I think for people like our age, it was mostly clothing, but they used to sell everything uh, mail order houses, clothes. Um, Tobacco apparatus, appliances. I mean, just everything you can possibly imagine. And they're beautifully illustrated. So when you scroll through, you can see, and not wealthy people, but they also had merchandise that covered a wide range of classes. So you can see formal dresses, hats, down to sewing kits. Um, I mean, that's really a, a, a walk through
1: the past. I was going to say, and that's that's the beauty of the internet and being able to to gather stuff, uh, information that that ultimately would have been lost. A time I was watching a, um, a I think it was a CBS news segment recently about a uh, a research center at a an American university. I can't remember which one that is like phenomenal in preserving old comics that would have just mm-hmm. been completely just. Uh, dist- Destroyed or forgotten about, and I um, mean that's just the beauty of just digitizing everything, right?
0: And sometimes there's an assumption that well, someone is saving it or someone is preserving it, um, and then there ends up being a no one.
1: Yeah, that's that's very true. Yeah. So can you share more about your your process in revisiting a lot of these classic live action Disney films? Right. So we talked about Disney Plus launching right when the right before the pandemic um, hit and, and you really consuming yourself and, and the research, what was that like in terms of how you engaged with these movies that were accessible on the platform or some other spaces, but perhaps from a different lens now, because you're an author, you're, you're writing about these, these films and, and the stars who are a part of them.
0: I do tend to dissect them a lot more. Um, and I find myself wondering, well, I wonder who this person is. I wonder who that person is. Um, especially a lot of quite elderly people in these movies, um, because some of them may have been born when movies really didn't even start. Now, in terms of my approach writing the book, um, you know, most of the movies I had at least some familiarity with, but let's just say like one of my favorites is Swiss Family Robinson. So when I first started my chapter on Sessu Hayakawa, I just watched it, didn't take notes, try not to think of anything, anything like that. And then as I would rewatch it, I would pay attention to different things. Um, So I might rewatch it again and really pay close attention to the landscapes and the animals. Um, because I'm not really sure if I have really noticed the landscapes before. You know, I think especially watching as a child, you just think about the animals. So a lot of movies, um, there might be a different approach or quite now it's gotten better since I started writing the book, but a lot of them are not on Disney plus. Um, And I'm not really sure why. So for example, So Dear to My Heart is an early live action film and that one really should be on Disney Plus. So I tried to watch it to see if there's some kind of reason why is there an outdated cultural depiction, you know, something of that nature, because that might explain why a lot of shorts are not on Disney Plus. And I couldn't find anything. So And then even, you know, between the time you submit a manuscript and the book is published, there can be quite a gap. So right before the book's released, I went there and watched all the movies again, um, because for different reasons, I may not have watched the movie for six months. Um, You know, so each movie, you know, you have different reasons for watching the movie besides just watching it. Um, One other thing I did pay attention to try and see is You know, luckily it's, I think it's starting to be broken, but there is a myth that as soon as Walt passed away in 1966, the studio went through sort of some sort of nosedive. Um, But of course the picture is a lot more complicated than that. Um, And you can see this mix of quality, especially just in live action films. Um, You know, you see The Happiest Millionaire, for example, which was released shortly after Walt's passing. And that's a favorite of a lot of people But upon its initial release, it was extremely long, um, which definitely hurt the movie quite a bit. It it is quite long. And one of the reasons this might be is because nobody wanted to delete anything because then it's like you're delete because Walt was heavily involved in the making of that movie. So then you're deleting something that, you know, Walt touched. Um, I really noticed a drop-off start to begin in terms of real meticulous quality. I don't cover in the book, but it's a 1973 movie called Charlie and the Angel. It stars Frederick Murray and Cloris Leachman and has Kurt Russell in it. And so it takes place in the Midwest. And at the end of the movie, you see them driving along a road with the California hills and palm trees. Um, and, and to me, that was the sign that, you know, maybe things are starting to go in a bit of a decline. Um, so sometimes now when I watch these movies, I do start to analyze them in my head.
1: No, that's understandable. Like, I can't say I even can remember... Hearing about that film, was that even was that even on Disney Plus, or did you have to turn to other outlets?
0: That one, most of them I probably about half the books movies I talked about, I initially had to buy DVDs for.
1: Gotcha. And it's so it's gotten a little better. A little better. How how many movies do you feel like you watched as part of your your research for, for this book?
0: Oh, that I'm not even sure between the Disney movies and then the non-Disney movies. I don't I don't know if hundreds is exaggerating, but qu- quite a large number. And luckily it was a mix of watching movies um and reading. Um and then I don't talk about too much in the book, but I also listen to a good bit of old-time radio. Um, so radio from the 30s, 40s, 50s. Cause at a certain point, I'm like, if I keep this up, I'm gonna blow my eyeballs out because it's just I'm gonna like wear them out. Um, so again it was a good mix. It was like if I watched movies, now I can. Um, read or you know Disney movies can be very noisy so they have a lot of dialogue they have a lot of music which I like um, but if I need something quieter well then I can watch you know one of the silent films Polinegri was in um, which have a musical accompaniments but no dialogue.
1: For sure well and, and one of my uh, one takeaway that I had among many in the book is that you're very meticulous with documenting all the notes right that's the whole maybe latter quarter of the book yes. um it, it seems like this was an incredibly time intensive endeavor how uh, wh- what is your 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 experience in just documenting and keeping things organized because you, you know one can clearly tell that you, you did your homework and you're very thorough so how, how did you make that uh realistic given the, the scope of covering 15 different celebrities and all the different uh, t- uh, relevant and, and tangential pathways.
0: So what I would recommend, what I did with this and what I recommend for anyone in general is, you know, go in with an extremely meticulous, rigorous organization system. In this case, I did it based off of person, but then also be ready to throw that out and start over with a new system if you have to. So, for example, you know, I talk about the movie That Darn Cat in a couple of chapters. So, you know, I also have to make sure I'm organized, that I'm, you know, giving enough information, but not too much. I'm not repeating myself. So I had a separate document for that movie next to my documents for Iris Adrian and Elsa Lanchester, who are also in that movie. Um, I mentioned this shaggy DA in several chapters. So the same thing happens. The big thing that helps too is if you have big blocks of time. So you can spend a few hours just, you know, sort of really pouring over this and making sure you're meticulous. Um, read it out loud. Um, because if you try and read it in your head, your brain will fill in all kinds of blanks and rearrange things. So you have to read out loud. Um, so it was a lot of laying on the floor with my laptop. Dory, the cat, would sit next to me. And I would just read it. So again, you want to try and be rigid, but then also be flexible, which I know sounds contradictory, but it's a, it's a process.
1: And and pets are always good co-authors, even if their names aren't on the book, right? <laughs>
0: they are. Yep, just sit there.
1: Spencer, I, I think what's um, very clear is that you were really immersed in, in this process. And what I liked is you highlighted how you're trying to illustrate kind of the the threads across different um, parts of the book, right? Like each chapter is on its own, on a distinct celebrity and all, all the different connections, but you're really showing how certain elements of Disney are are really all over the place, right? I think you reference how uh, going back to the ugly docks and Brutus, the dog, the, 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 the dog was also in Swiss Family Robinson. Is that right?
0: Yep. And he was quite well-traveled.
1: Very true. But I think that just shows, like, you know, not only were the human stars uh, often appearing in multiple films, but sometimes the the four-legged kind as well.
0: Yeah, I tried to include information about animals as I came across it, because um, what would a Disney film be without an animal?
1: Yeah, and there were a lot of them in, in the 60s and 70s, especially, I think. I think that was maybe a trademark uh, feature of, of so many of those movies.
0: Yeah, and luckily, you know, the Walt Disney Studio, they started making live-action films really in earnest in the mid-50s when the larger studios like MGM were very quickly falling apart. So they benefited from a lot of experienced staff, um, you know, who knew how to train the animals, who knew how to do costumes. Um, A lot of the early Imagineers came from this world.
1: Oh, absolutely. Well, and in reviewing, you said you probably, I mean, you didn't count, but probably in at least a hundred or if not many more films that you watched, were there any, uh, in the Disney realm that is, any live action films that surprised you in terms of how awesome they are, or perhaps on the flip side, how they really don't stand up or, or are disappointing?
0: Well, I was familiar with the movie, That Darn Cat, um, 1965, but And I'm probably more familiar with the remake, which I think came out maybe when I was a preteen. I'm like, this movie is really, really funny. Um, And I love cats. So anything with the cat, you kind of have me anyway. Um, But you have this cast of, you know, Dean Jones and Iris Adrian, Elsa Lanchester. There's a lot of talent in this movie. um, And that movie I really enjoyed a lot. Um, And another one, um, so dear to my heart, I don't think gets enough attention either. Now it is quite like sweet and sentimental, um, but you know, it's quick and it's really well done. Um, you know, it was filmed on sets. Again, it has a strong cast. Um, so that was another one that I think deserves quite a bit more attention. Um, I'm trying to think if there were any that I watched that I was, oh, Babes in Toyland, um, which luckily even Walt was sort of like, yeah, this isn't a great movie. Um, that movie was painful. I almost took that chapter out because it, so I talk about Ray Bolger, who was Barnaby in Babes in Toyland. Um, and so he has a really interesting story in terms of that movie and Babes in Toyland 1959, I believe, I may be off by a year. Um, you know, that movie had a lot of technology involved that was very important in the making of Mary Poppins. Um, and you know, it was an experience where the studio was learning. And so what they did is they learned and they moved on. Um, You know, one quote that stands out to me a lot, both in terms of Disney and my own life is at the end of the making of the Moon Spinners, the 1964 movie, I think it turned out to be a a good movie. Um, Not great, but good. And so Walt saw the preview and he said, let's move on to something else and walked out of the preview room. Um, But that was sort of his attitude toward everything, whether it was a success or not. You know, even a few months after Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs came out, he was being asked about the movie. And he said to the reporter, he's like, why are you asking me about this? We already did this. We're moving on to Pinocchio and Bambi and this and this. Um, so he said, even if the movie didn't turn out well, you learn from it, you move forward.
1: Well, I think that mentality has also carried through the company long after Walt's passing, where it's the newest thing that's the greatest thing and worth focusing on, right? The, the, the attention shifts with each new endeavor or property or film or series or whatever the, the form of entertainment is. So I think it sounds like Walt really established that foundation and, and mentality.
0: Right. Like Walt said, if you're not working on 30 things at a time, you're not busy.
1: Very true. Spencer, you know, you focus on so many stars that are part of Disney's past, uh, and when you you highlight fifteen, but of course, other celebrities and and notable figures are are mentioned, and it makes me wonder uh, about a topic that I think about often: is what what constitutes a formal Disney legend, getting that really prestigious honor, which has evolved over time in terms of who's perhaps being bestowed with it. But given that you're much more well acquainted with um, these folks and and other pro- people associated with these projects, how do you define uh, a Disney legend? And would you say uh, any of these folks who are, are not formal Disney legends are worthy of that status? I know that was a long question, but yeah. I think you understand the point.
0: Yeah, I think of a Disney legend as if you took this person away and if you took them out of the world of Disney, how would it be different? Um, So, for example, the nine old men, if they didn't exist, you know, how might Disney be different? Um, Now, in terms of the 15 people I mentioned... Only one, Maurice Chevalier. he was named a Disney legend. Now, I did think about this question when I was writing the book um, is, you know, should any of these people be named Disney legends? And some of them, I'm not so sure. Um, You know, we mentioned Paula Negri, and she had an interesting story. And, you know, it was interesting at the time of the film's release, The Moon Centers. But if you took her away, I don't think it would alter Disney history too much. Um, But, you know, I mentioned Suzanne Plachette. Who really helped keep the film she was in quite popular and really helped keep the momentum going and by the standards of the 60s she played quite a few risque roles so even casting her in disney films was surprising um so she's someone who i think should definitely be a disney legend um so as i was going through the live action films i did actually struggle with that question in my head a little bit now my prior book voices behind the magic pretty much all of those people should absolutely be Disney legends like Verna Felton, who voiced, you know, the queen of hearts and the fairy godmother as well as other characters. I have no idea why I, should, why I can think why she's not a Disney legend, but, you know, but this one's a little different, you know, so some of them entered the world of Disney for a little bit, they had an interesting role and then they moved on. Um, so, you know, it, it, it's complicated. And like, I think you talked about it a few episodes ago, it's, you know, sort of very subjective. What is a Disney legend or when does someone have a legacy? Um, Beulah Bondi is someone else I cover in the book who played Granny Kincaid and So Dear to My Heart. She should definitely be a Disney legend. Um, you know, that film is very important in the post-war period when Disney, as a company, was trying to rebuild and move forward um, and was on very, very shaky grounds.
1: Yeah. I think the, um, go yeah. ahead. I'm sorry. Now, ahead,
0: or like, or like Peter Laurie is someone I I think also probably should be named a Disney Legend as well. You know, he w- had a supporting role in Twenty Thousand Leagues Under the Sea, which was on um, the first fully live action film Disney made in the U.S. Um, it was a huge hit, um, and I think the casting of himself and a few other people in that movie really helped make it what it was.
1: Well, and I think what, what you say there is really important is in terms of context and what I, I love what you say if you removed the person from the project, would it still have been a successful or have the cultural significance or whatnot? Because like the way I would be evaluating it is from the lens of what is the quality of the person's work, and also in concert with that, what is the quantity of their work? How how long were they embedded in, in the Disney world? And I think that's where. Some really fascinating discussions can emerge, particularly when you know you have a book like yours, which is is focusing on such a, a variety of folks associated with Disney, but their contributions were also um, very variable. Yeah. Well, kind of to to wrap up, Spencer, uh, what what do you hope readers glean from reading about these stars and and the, the related Disney stories and the the cultural context and historical backstories? What what are the takeaways here? What what do you hope they, they come away with? So
0: really my main goal with the book is that if you don't know a lot about Disney history and you want to learn, um, you can read the book and the information is very accessible to you. But if you also have a certain degree of expertise and experience, you still learn a lot. Um, you know, a lot of these live action films aren't discussed very much. Um, so hopefully you can still learn. Um, and then really the third goal is that you know, it encourages you to watch these films on Disney plus, um, because I'm a little concerned that if they're not watched, then more won't be added or worse. They'll even be taken away. Um, so if you see a film in the book, you know, I would encourage you to watch it and even look at the either related or suggestion section and watch other films from a similar era. Um, you know, most of them, you know, they're variable in quality, but they're fun. They're family friendly. They're entertaining. Um, And if we don't watch them, they're going to end up sitting in a vault.
1: That's very true. Very true. Spencer, how can listeners follow your work, purchase copy of the book, uh, maybe follow you on on social media? But yeah, go for it. So on
0: Facebook, I'm Spencer Wright author. And then on Instagram, I'm overlooked diz. And I'll send you the links. And then you can find the book either on Amazon or also baremannermedia.com. Um, Baremannermedia is the publisher. Um, and I would definitely encourage anyone listening to the show to really take their time to browse around the catalog of books they have. Um, it's an independent publisher, you know, but there's biographies of a lot of people really important to Disney. Um, there's a great biography on there of Fred McMurray, who was the first Disney legend. Um, Paul Freese, who voiced the ghost host in The One at mansion um you know a long list of you know books on there that i think anyone listening to the show would probably be interested in
1: always nice to to plug some other titles from the same publisher spencer this was definitely a unique read i enjoyed learning more about the the celebrities that you focus on and all the thorough work that you put into this so thanks for thanks for adding this to our our catalog and and for joining me today
0: Well, thank you for having me back
1: And thank you again to Spencer Wright for joining me on Notably Disney for a second time. You can check out his book, The Enchanted Disney, Stories of Walt, Hollywood, and Live Action Film, which is available through uh, Bear Manor Press. And certainly Spencer is on social media. You can find him on Facebook and Instagram, uh, as mentioned. Uh, and all those details are in the show notes so i hope you enjoy that conversation and find some new discoveries by virtue of checking out his latest release thanks again for joining me on another episode of notably disney i invite you to subscribe to the podcast and leave a review follow me on twitter at bnachman reports that's b-n-a-c-h-m-a-n reports and be among the first to find out about the release of new episodes. I also encourage you to send me an email to NotablyDisney at gmail.com regarding your thoughts of the show, as well as suggestions for content. So until we turn the page on another chapter, I'm Brett, and thanks for listening to Notably Disney.